Thanks, guys. We're going to study the scriptures for a moment now, for a moment, well, about 30 moments, okay? Um, We are studying the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ecclesiastes, which is right in the middle. Um, You've got Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, kind of crack it in the middle. You'll get pretty close there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs, and we're on page 556, 57 in that range. The main theme we've seen in Ecclesiastes is that, that life is short. Um, And this is said differently in all the different translations. We've been kind of comparing different translations. I'm reading actually a different one than than the ones that are under the pew racks there. Um, But it says sometimes that life is futile, um, that life is vanity, or that life is meaningless. And that Hebrew word is literally mist. It's like a vapor. And it says in the text that it's like trying to grab onto the wind. We can't really control our life. We can't really hold on to it. It blows by. It's somewhat out of our control And the author brings us at the end of Ecclesiastes to this idea that because we're somewhat out of control, it leaves us no choice but to trust God and do what he says. It literally says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the end of the matter. And so Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book in the Bible that's building wisdom from the ground up. Solomon was a guy who lived a wild life. He partied, he had a lot of money, he had a lot of women, and he went through all this and he says, you know what, it's meaningless. It's vanity. What makes the most sense with our life is to trust God and do what he says. The book of Proverbs is kind of the opposite. It starts off with fear God, trust him. Ecclesiastes ends there. Either way you go in life, that's the same conclusion. This week, we're calling it Haunted by Life. We're going to look at chapter 7 and 8, and we're going to kind of be speeding up here this week and the next couple of weeks as we move towards the end of Ecclesiastes. Um, We kind of took it slow at the beginning. Now we'll be speeding up. I'll be skipping some verses. So I just want you to know, if you want to go back and read some of the verses I didn't cover, you're welcome to do that on your own time. You're always free to read more verses, okay? But I'm not going to cover every single verse today. We're going to kind of speed through this and hit on the major themes. Chapter 7 and 8, Haunted by Life. This is a time of year where if uh, if you have eyes, if you're out at the store, a lot of people are trying to scare each other, right? This is, with Halloween, this is like a scary time of year. I remember when our kids were little, they basically didn't want to go out during this season, right? Because there were scary things everywhere. And this reminded me, as we looked at the text today, the big idea of the text is that God is calling us towards life and towards his grace, even through the hard things and the scary things that we face. And so it kind of fits with this time of year and this focus on being scared. You know what? You're going to face scary things in life, and God can actually use those for good. Romans 8.28 is a famous verse a lot of believers cling to that says, God works all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So the good things and the bad things, bad things are still bad. Suffering is still suffering. Pain is still pain, but God can use that. He can reverse that and use that for his purposes and for our good. It can, it can be calling us towards life. I had a friend who told me, one of my closest friends actually, that years ago, back in the 70s, his mother saw this really scary movie. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called The Exorcist. You all ever heard of this movie? Terrifying movie. I never watched it. I just saw like half a scene. I was like, I'm not watching that, right? Like, I am not going to watch that movie. Um, She watched this movie. It was so horrifying. It was so haunting. It was so scary that she actually converted to Christ after watching that movie. Uh, My friend likes to say it scared the hell out of her. Um... (laughs) So, I know, bad joke, but seriously, he says that. I didn't come up with it. He says that. Um, It scared her so bad, it drove her to go seek safety in the arms of her Savior. 
you'll have experiences in life that are horrifying that nobody wants to go through. I just want you to know that for some of you, this is going to be harder because you're in the middle of some of those bad experiences right now. Like you may be at rock bottom in this moment. Know that I've been praying for you. My heart has been heavy for you because I know some of the things that we're saying here uh, make more sense when you're looking back on them, right? Like I can look back on hard times in my life and see how God used those. But if you're in the middle of it, it can be like salt on a wound. So I, w- I want you to know that I'm, I'm sorry for that. I'm just praying that the Spirit would give you extra grace in the moment that you're in right now. I'm going to read chapter 7, and then we're going to kind of make reference more to chapter 8 as we move through the text this morning. But let's start with chapter 7, verse 1. It says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So there's the scary theme, right? The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind. And the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile or vanity. Surely the practice of extortion or oppression turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it's not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. Because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God for who can straighten out what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. So the author's telling us that God is ultimately in charge. Despair, sin, evil, bad things that you're going through um, are not a specific punishment from God, but we do have a father who is sovereign and allows us to go through hard things and can be taking us to a purpose we don't yet see, we don't yet fully understand. Um, And so again, I'm going to pray for you, for those of you that are going through especially hard things right now, but just pray for our time that God would speak to us through the text. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your grace to us, and we trust that you're good. And God, you know there are some this morning who are just, who are on the edge, who are hurting in a way they've never hurt before, and I pray for their hearts, that you would protect them, that you would give them extra grace. God, I pray for all of us. We are all sufferers. We are all people who have hurt in this world, and so we pray that you would teach us how to run to you in our hurt and pain instead of running away from you. We pray that you would help us. We pray that this text would help us and teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So my big idea for the text, we're haunted by life. There are hard things we go through in life that are actually a haunting, not just from the bad things, but a haunting from the Holy Ghost, from the Holy Spirit, from God himself who is drawing us to himself through our negative experiences. And so as we move through chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're going to see that God is drawing us to life through coming face-to-face with the reality of death. We live in a world of death. That's where we started with the first verses I read there. We're also drawn to life and to God's goodness through the experience of human emptiness. None of us really enjoy coming to an end of ourselves, but that's a healthy thing where we 
recognize our own emptiness, our own weakness, and that draws us to find true life in God. And then finally, the really countercultural idea that he's going to hit on is that judgment itself is something that, that gives us life. We live in a culture now that hates the idea of judgment, hates the idea of a God who says this is wrong and this is right. But in seeing that God is the one who's in charge and God is ultimately judging mankind, that's another way that draws us to life in God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, I thought was really helpful. He says in chapter 1, 8, and 9, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is fascinating to read alongside what, what he's saying here in Ecclesiastes, because the whole book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is laying out his philosophy of ministry. You see, Paul was up against health and wealth teachers in the first century, who said, if you really love God, you'll have everything. You'll be rich, and you will have no problems in life. And Paul said, that's not actually how it works. God actually gives us this treasure in jars of clay. We are broken people with cancer and broken relationships and limps and weaknesses, and God allows his grace to shine through our weakness and our brokenness. That's how he works. And so we see the same ideas here in this text. So the first one we want to look at is that God is giving us life through death. It's one of the great paradoxes of our faith. God gives life through death. Look again at verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. We'll zero in on verses 2 through 4 here. Verses 2, 3, and 4, really just verses 2 and 3, really, I think, make this point really crystal clear. He says, it's better to go to a house of mourning. That's not like mourning, good morning. That's mourning like grieving, sadness, a house of sadness. It's really talking about a funeral here. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. So he's saying, it's good to go to a funeral and say, that's where I'm headed. Have you done that? Have you taken that wisdom in? Go to a funeral and recognize, I am also going to die. Someday people are going to be talking about me, and they're either going to be saying that I was kind and generous, or they're going to be saying that I was a terrible person, and they're, they're glad I'm gone, right? What are, what are people going to be saying? That's where we're all headed. And again and again, the book has said, your life is short. Are you going to make it count? How are you going to make it count? How are you going to live your life knowing that life is short? And it's like a vapor and a wind that you can't really grab onto. You just got to live it now. It says, it's better to go to this house of mourning, to a funeral, better than a house of feasting, because that's where we're headed. It's the end of all mankind. The living should take it to heart. Verse 3, grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. Verses 4 and 5, and 5 specifically, he goes to this idea of uh, it's better to listen to rebuke than to the song of fools, right? So he's saying, be careful not to listen to the celebration of fools. So I just want to kind of back up and give you perspective here. He's, he's not saying that it's wrong to rejoice and it's wrong to go to feasting, it's wrong to have fun. He's just saying, make sure you don't skip the lessons of death and suffering, right? So what the fool does is the fool says, I will not endure death and suffering, I will numb myself to it and avoid it at all costs. I refuse to face death and suffering. I'm just going to sing songs. I'm just going to have parties. That's what the fool does. That's what he's saying we shouldn't do. We shouldn't just run to the, to the parties of fools. We should get to the joy. We should get to the singing and the songs and the fun 
through the reality that, that life is also a life of death and suffering and pain. We have to have both in life for life to truly make sense. So we've seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that he says, rejoice, enjoy the good gifts that God gives you, have joy, have fun, sing songs, eat good meals. So he's not saying never do that. He's just saying the fool only does that. That's all the fool does. We often talk about it as a coping mechanism, right? That's a psychological term we use for it, or numbing yourself, right? You've been through hard things, you don't wanna face it anymore, so you drink. You've been through hard things, you don't wanna face it anymore, so you use porn. You've been through hard things, you don't wanna face it anymore, so you go shop, right? Whatever it may be, there are things we do to just numb. I just wanna get away from it. I just wanna party and sing songs. I don't wanna face the pain and the hardship anymore. Solomon says, just slow down and actually, you gotta soak it in a little bit. You gotta take in these lessons. This is a part of life that we have to learn. He says in verse six, like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. That's a haunting image. He's trying to give you like a creepy image here, okay? So it goes with the theme of the haunting here. It's like, it's, it's really not as good as you think it is, right? The laughter of fools isn't a pure and good laughter. Don't run there. So should we have joy in life? Should we have feasting in life? Yes, but don't do it at the cost of running from all the lessons that we have to learn from death. Our life is informed by death. Last couple of days, I interviewed a couple of friends who have faced chronic illness and death to try to learn lessons from them. Because I know these things are true in the scripture. I've preached sermons on this before, but I was like, you know what? These are people that love the Lord who are facing difficulty. I wanna, I wanna hear what God is teaching them through their experience of, of coming face to face with their death, with the shortness of their life. Um, we have a friend here at the church, the chairman of our deacon board, our, our drummer, Steve, who has stage four cancer. Every, every day is a borrowed day, right? Every day is more days than the doctors thought he would have. And he said, he told me that that brought into crystal clarity the shortness of everyone's life, right? When your life, when the doctor tells you, hey, you have like very few days left, that helps you to see the truth of what Ecclesiastes is saying, that everybody has very few days, right? So he has a focus and like a laser crystal clarity on something that's true for all of us. Because the doctor said, hey, you don't have many more years. You don't have many more months. And really, that's true of all of us. We're all dying. We all have a short life. We all live a life that's just a vapor and a breath and wind. But those who have come closer to death and disease, they're more aware of it than we are, right? He said one of the things that that did was it clarified for him what counts and what doesn't, right? He cares more about... Uh, loving his wife and family than he does maybe other things he worried about before. He cares more about investing in people and investing in the gospel than investing in things that are just going to burn and fall away, right? He said he used to be a hoarder. He's a little less of a hoarder now, or at least his hoarding is more focused on giving gifts to those he loves <laughs> and less hoarding for himself. Um, one of the things that he talked about is how it clarified for him that, you know what, everybody needs the gospel, do the people I love know Jesus because their life is short too? And it's made him want to spend more time talking to others about who Jesus is and all the grace that we have in him. These are the kinds of lessons that we can learn from those who have been to the house of mourning, who have come face to face with their death. I would encourage you, as you know, friends that are suffering, not to run from it, right? It says in Romans that those of us who are believers should weep with those who weep and Rejoice with those who rejoice. And so when your friends are celebrating, celebrate with them. But when your friends are crying, cry with them. Hold their hands. Don't preach at them. 
But listen, because they're going to have things that they can preach at you. If, if they have faith, if they have a biblical perspective, they can see that God's teaching them things through the suffering. Take advantage of that opportunity. I've learned so much as a pastor. I have this incredible privilege of walking through, through many of your lives as you face difficult things. And, and I learned so much from you. And I just tell you as a congregation, make sure you don't miss those lessons, those opportunities. You have friends that are suffering. Don't just ignore them and their suffering, but move closer to them and listen and pray with them and learn the lessons that they're learning. There's a, there's a lot there. There's another member of our church named uh, Audrey Godley. She's a young college student. Um, she told me how she really learned to stop placing her faith in her youth and in her strength. She was an athlete in high school, loved swimming, tall, active, really placed a lot of her faith and her trust in her youth and in her strength. And then she got a debilitating neurological disease that, that you know, at this point makes it difficult even for her to walk. And so she couldn't be an athlete anymore. And as she had to wrestle with that, she she realized that God in his grace was allowing her to place less trust in her strength and more trust in him. There are all kinds of lessons that we can learn uh, as we face death, as we face disease, as we face suffering and difficulty. Audrey and Steve both talked about how this gave them a compassion for other people. As you suffer, as you face death, it gives you a softness towards those who are suffering. It gives you an entree, uh, opportunity to speak into other people's lives and to comfort them and to say, I've been there, I'm sorry, and, and to, to understand and to care for them and to reach out for them, to be less afraid of suffering yourself because you've been through suffering now and you can, you can be close to people who are suffering. So there are all kinds of great things that we can learn, and Solomon is pointing that out here. I want to kind of back up a little bit and say those are kind of practical lessons, right? Trusting less in our strength, renewed compassion for other people, deepening in our faith, clarity about the shortness of life. Those are very clear lessons we can learn, but kind of back up a little bit and say our entire faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, is built on finding life through death. I grabbed a picture here of a baptism. Uh, This is Chris Bannister, just got baptized a couple of weeks ago. And in baptism, it's kind of hard to tell from the picture, am I pulling him up or am I pushing him under? What's happening? You know, because baptism is, is actually a death image. The primary image of baptism is washing, and that's why a lot of church traditions do it with just like a, you know, a splash. Uh, we like to do the full plunge because we like the second image as well, which is talked about in Colossians, which is death and resurrection. It's a death image. It's parallel to us being saved through the floodwaters of judgment like Noah and his ark, right? Coming through those waters of judgment and coming up to life because God has saved us in Christ. It's also parallel to God saving his people in the Exodus. They were being chased by their enemies and they went through the waters of the Red Sea. They were parted. They passed through to safety and then the waters of judgment collapsed on God's enemies. So there's this life through death image even in our baptism. What you're saying when you get baptized, I think we're going to have two or three people get baptized today at our picnic after church. You're saying, I believe that I couldn't save myself, and so I had to die. Spiritually speaking, I had to die. I can't save myself. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not good enough. So I gave myself away. I entrusted myself to Jesus. My sins were nailed on the cross with him. I died with him, and when he died, I died, and I rose to new life with him. And so our baptism is, is merely acting that out. A baptism is a drama symbolizing to the community what we believe by faith God has already done for us in Christ. So we believe that if we trust in Christ, we've died with him, 
and we've risen to new life with him. That's a faith exchange. That's a substitution. You're trusting in Christ instead of trusting yourself. You're trusting that you died with him and now you have new life with him because he rose from the dead. And that's a faith act, right? That's entrusting yourself to God who saves us, not because of what we can do, but because of what he can do. So baptism is just acting that out, symbolizing that, telling other people about this truth that we believe by faith. And that is that we have life through death. And so this leads to a couple of the practical applications, right? And so one of them I already gave you is listen to people that are closer to death than you are. Listen to the lessons that they're learning. But also here it says in the text, verse 9, don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the hearts of fools. It says in James um, that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, right? Anger is us taking control of the situation, saying, I will make it happen. I will do what needs to be done in this situation. Whereas faith is entrusting yourself to God. Now, it doesn't mean we should be passive and never do anything, right? But he's saying, don't, don't let your heart be angry. Don't give yourself over to anger, but entrust yourself to God. Things are gonna go wrong. Your life is gonna be out of control and you're gonna have to entrust yourself to him. Verse 10, he says this. This one's even more convicting to me. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it is not wise of you to ask this. Right? If you're facing middle age like me, it's easy to go there, right? I used to be strong. I used to have health, right? When I heard Audrey's testimony of kind of being torn away from the idol of strength and life, that, that's how I came to Christ. Um, I was a part of this cult called Texas High School Football. Are you all familiar with this cult? It's a cult a lot of people give their lives over to. I found my salvation in being part of a winning program and being a good athlete. Um, and you know what? God in his grace allowed me to, to fold to injuries, right? My body just kept falling apart. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hang in there. And so it was like, it was, it was taken from me, right? But that helped me in God's grace to then no longer trust in me and my strength, but to trust in God and his grace and his kindness and his, his strength. So it says, don't be Uncle Rico. Why were the former days better than these? Since it is not wise of you to ask this. If you don't know Uncle Rico, ask a friend. It's from Napoleon Dynamite, right? He's the creepy uncle that's always talking about what a great athlete he used to be, okay? Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Live now. Move through the death into life. Learn your lessons from it. Are you falling apart? Yeah, you're falling apart. We're all falling apart, okay? Those of us with chronic illnesses are falling apart more quickly. We have a name for it. The rest of us, it's just life, just falling apart. I had a, a Greek professor in seminary, said he went in to have some work done on his knee, uh, and they really didn't you know, have a name for what was going on. It was just old age, um, but the doctor had written something on the chart and the guy was a Greek professor, and he got kind of mad at the doctor. He was like, hey, I, I know Greek. I know what that says, because the doctor wrote necrosis on the chart. Necrosis means death, right? So that's like, I guess, a doctor term for you're just falling apart. You're just getting old. I guess that's what they use that for. And he's like, I don't, as a Greek professor, I don't appreciate that you're saying I, I have death, and that's what's wrong with me here. But that's what's wrong with all of us, right? It's just death at work. We're falling apart. We're dying. Life is short. It's just brief. He's saying here, go to a funeral and recognize that's where I'm headed. So how are you going to live now? Don't go backwards and say, oh, things were so great back. No, live now in light of where you're headed. How are you going to live well? What's your funeral going to look like? What are people going to say? Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. 
But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. God is sovereign. We need to be real careful. This is the final word on this. Bad things are bad. Don't call bad things good, but trust that God can do good things through the bad things that you're experiencing. So that's just an important distinction, right? There's kind of two extremes we go to. One extreme, God is so good, God is so sovereign that we kind of play mind tricks and we're like, so everything's good and we don't really cry when we should cry. There's another extreme we go to where it's like, oh, God's kind of out of control and he's not responsible for this because it's bad and he's not really sovereign. No, God is sovereign over everything and God can filter everything and God can control everything and so we entrust ourselves to him. Jesus said in Matthew that a sparrow doesn't even fall to the ground apart from the Father's will, but God cares for you more than the sparrows. So trust yourself to him. It's hard for us to balance all that out, right? Like nobody really has that all figured out. Trust that God is sovereign. You can entrust yourself to him. Somehow he's in charge of the good days and the bad days. The bad days are still bad. <laughs> the bad days are still bad. Don't make the mistake of, of skipping over that and saying, so good is bad and bad is good. No, bad is still bad, but trust that God can reverse that. That somehow in the end, God's gonna make sense of it all. We're entrusting ourselves to him even when we don't understand it. The next thing that we see as we move through the second half of chapter seven is that we find life through emptiness. We come to an end of ourselves. So through human emptiness, he's gonna talk a lot about how he's never really seen anyone that's got it all figured out, that has wisdom solved, right? Nobody's really done it all, been everything they should be. Uh, If you look at verse 15, it says it this way, in my futile or vain life, I've seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. So Hebrew scholar uh, Walt Kaiser says this whole section, chapter 7, chapter 8, and even the chapters around this are all about him trying to work out how can we trust that God is good and just and wise when life doesn't seem to make sense, right? He sees sometimes good people live short lives, bad people live long lives. He's like, this isn't really fair. Go on, verse 16. He says, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? This is really confusing, right? He's saying, don't be too wise and don't be too foolish. What is he saying here? He's not saying it's wrong to be wise. He's not saying it's wrong to be righteous. We have a phrase in modern English that I think you would understand even if you're not a Christian, even if you've never been to church before, and this phrase is self-righteousness. Have you heard that phrase before? Self-righteousness is when we say, I'm not really righteous, but I'm thinking I'm better than other people, right? It's a righteousness in and of yourself. It's a confidence in your own flesh and your own strength and in your own abilities. And Christianity warns about that. There are two ditches here. He's saying you can be overly wise, self-righteousness, and even in the Hebrew, it supports that in the grammar. It's a reflexive uh, term where it's reflecting back on itself. So you're, the way it says this in Proverbs is don't be wise in your own eyes. You know that phrase from Proverbs? Don't be self-righteous, don't be wise in your own eyes. That's what he's saying. And don't be excessively wicked. Two ways that we deal with the hardships in life, right? It's, uh, sometimes it's called legalism and license. So legalism is I will be so righteous that God will have to bless me. I will be so good, God will have no choice but to bow to my will and give me good things, right? It's kind of the health and wealth gospel there. You're, just, you're gonna do good things and God has to do good in return. Now, there's this general concept from Proverbs, wisdom from the Bible, that there's blessing in obedience, blessing in righteousness, but no human can be so righteous that God is in your debt. 
right? None of us can be righteous enough. So legalism and that self-righteousness becomes kind of a a sense of lying about it. I don't really need God because I'm righteous enough. I can obey him so well, I don't really need his grace. That's self-righteousness, sometimes called fundamentalism. The other extreme would be like liberalism or liberty license where you just like do whatever you want, just follow your heart. There are no rules, there are no boundaries, right? Just do your own thing. You're kind of doing away with the whole category of sin. He would call that excessively wicked. He says you're going to die before your time, right? You're just going to burn up and waste your life if you do that. You're going to hit rock bottom way too fast if you pursue that angle. Jack Miller was a founder of a mission. I'm going to use a chart from his mission here in a second. And he says it this way, cheer up, you're more sinful than you realized. And cheer up, you're more loved than you ever imagined. You're more sinful than you realize, but you're more loved than you imagined, right? We're often wrong on both counts. We're worse than we realize, but God's answer is more gracious than we ever realized. He loves us anyway. That's what the gospel is all about. Um, Tertullian, famous church father, said this, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification being made right in Christ, this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. They're the two ditches we fall off into. Think about it for yourself. What's the, the error you're more prone to? Are you more prone to say, I can do it on my own? I can, I can just, uh, I can make it happen. I'm just gonna be righteous. Or are you prone to the other extreme of like, I just don't wanna think about it. I just wanna go have fun. I'm just gonna go party. I'm just gonna go sing songs. I'm just gonna indulge. I'm gonna follow my own heart. I'm gonna do what feels good. Which error are you more prone to? And Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, he's warning us against both extremes. He's saying neither one really gets us where we want to go. He says it in verse 23, um, I've tested all by wisdom. I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? That's that human emptiness. You gotta come to a place where you're like, I can't do it, right? Following my own heart is not gonna save me and being righteous and perfect in my own way is not gonna save me. I need to have the open hands of faith and I need to receive what God has done for me. Here's a chart that I found helpful a lot. Uh, And this chart shows a a growing line on the top and a growing line on the bottom. The growing line on the top as we come to see our faith is that we have a growing awareness of God's holiness. So more and more you get a bigger vision as you consider God, you get a bigger and bigger vision of how big, how awesome, how holy he really is. And then the bottom line is a growing awareness of my flesh and my sinfulness. More and more you realize, man, I'm not as awesome as I thought I was, right? Like when I was 17 and I became a Christian, I thought I was pretty impressive because I read my Bible and I stopped cussing. You know, like, woohoo, all right, that's great. But as you grow, right, you get married, you have kids, you realize, oh, I'm a profoundly selfish human being, right? I'm not as awesome as I thought. You have this growing awareness of your flesh, of your sinfulness. You're, You're not everything you thought you were. And you know what covers that gap? The cross, Jesus, the grace that he has for us in Christ. And so don't fall off in either ditch. Don't try to cover the gap by just numbing yourself and by running away and just indulging and following your heart. And don't try to cover the gap by saying, I can be good enough. I'll do all the right things and then God will owe me. No, trust Jesus. Trust God. Entrust yourself to him. And so in this section, he gives us a couple of, uh, a couple of oh, practical suggestions as well that I think are helpful Here is one, uh, instead of entrusting yourself to your own righteousness, instead of entrusting yourself falling off the ditch and just following your own heart into wickedness, verse 21, he says also this, don't pay attention to everything people say 
or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart, you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. What does that have to do with what he's saying here? Here's, I think, the connection. Here's, I think, where it, it connects. I think he's saying, stop listening to other voices. You know, the only voice that really matters is what God has to say to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. There's a lot of people that are going to say a lot of hurtful things. Just, just blow that off, okay? Pay attention to what God has to say to you. And the message he has for you in the gospel is, I love you. I delight in you as I delight in my very own son. I'm pleased with you. Trust me. Follow me. He goes on here, and there's a section, and I'm not going to go into all the verses through here, but uh, later on, verses like 25 through the end of the chapter, he starts talking about how in his own life, Solomon was tempted to give himself over to women, right? A sexual indulgence, to say, that's the answer for me. And he did that, and he said it became a trap for him. So he's given this very practical warning. That's one of the ways that we try to find salvation outside of God as in relationships and indulgence. And he says, don't go there. And he has this really strange little section where he talks about, you know, I was really never able to find what I was looking for. I was never able to find that salvation in other people. He said, I found help in one out of a thousand men, but in no women. And people are like, what? What are you saying, Solomon? Like he's saying this is some kind of uh, thing against women. But I think what he's saying is in context of he personally had a sexual addiction and was trying to find salvation in women. So I think really that's what that is about in case you, you read on and think, is Solomon a chauvinist here? No, I think he's just saying he had, a, he had a personal trap that he fell into again and again that we should be warned about as well. Don't give yourself over to relationships thinking that will save you. So you don't fall off into either ditch, indulgence or self-righteousness, but entrust yourself to God. All right, the last section that he has here is life through judgment. We're gonna see this in chapter eight. Um, so chapter eight, Verse 1 is kind of a transition verse here where he, he's coming back to wisdom. He's saying there's going to be all this craziness in your life. Uh, verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise person and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A person's wisdom brightens his face and the sternness of his face has changed. So he's going to keep commending wisdom, right? He's going to say wisdom is not enough to save you, but wisdom is still a good thing. Growing and understanding who God is and what he has for your life is still important. Continue to learn from him, and that will brighten your face as you go through these struggles in life. And then in verse 2 through 9, I'm not going to read those verses. Again, read these on your own, but he talks about going before the king. He's going to talk about government and justice, and this is where he brings up the whole topic of judgment. And then he's going to work his way to, you know what? There are kings that may or may not give righteous judgments in our life, but we entrust ourselves to the real king, the king of the universe. So right now, right, we're a country that's divided, and we all hate one side and love the other, or love one side and hate the other, right? And we think if the king we want is elected, then everything will be okay. And Solomon is saying, eh, who knows? He might be good, he might be bad, but the ultimate king is the one you can trust. So as Christian people, we are to give ourselves to the steps of faithfulness, right? Study candidates, study the Bible, study truth, make wise choices the best you can, debate with your friends, have these conversations, but please don't hate each other, and please don't put all your faith in the political system, because he's saying that God is the true king, and sometimes kings judge justly, and sometimes they judge poorly. We have a God who will ultimately judge everything, who will judge things rightly, we often use in our justice system a symbol for this, the goddess of justice. Have y'all ever seen one of these statues on a courthouse? Now, I'm not uh, encouraging you to worship this goddess. I would just say this is a symbol 
of justice. And the symbolism is found in two things, actually three things. You can't see the third. She's got a sword in her hand, but pay no attention to the sword that's off picture. Um, She's got a blindfold, and the idea there is that justice is blind. What does that mean? Well, it means justice doesn't pay attention to the surface, but it tries to pay attention to the objective facts. Can anyone do this perfectly? Well, yes and no. None of us can, but God can. Only God can. So we build a system, right? We have laws, we have this constitution, we have all these things we build to try to, I think we have a pretty good justice system, but it's still human. It still fails. So we try to build a system that's fair and right, and we try to adjust it, and we try to work with it and make it more fair, more just, but none of us can make it perfect. Only God sees, and there's this coming judgment where God will make all things right. It's part of what Solomon's talking about here. God is the ultimate judge. And then you've got these scales where things are balanced as they truly are. They're weighed, right? Like in the ancient world, you might bring a product and be like, hey, this is this big, beautiful, you know, heavy product. And then they'd weigh it and they'd like, oh, it's a lot of air, right? There's not really much to it. So the scales of justice are the idea is that things are weighed out. They're measured and found wanting. Well, Solomon here, look at verse 10 through 13. He's going to talk about the whole idea of justice and injustice in this world. He's going to tell us to hold on and trust the true judge. Look at verse 10. In such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. So he previously was talking about the good and bad in life and going before the king and different justice systems. In such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place and they were praised in the city where they did those things, those wicked things. This too is futile. This is vanity. He's saying wicked people are going to be praised in the world that we live in. Evil is going to be lifted up. That's the kind of world we live in. You have to to understand that. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to understand part of our role is to be be on the other side sometimes of culture. Say, wait, no, that's not right, right? Like this, this is right and this is wrong. We don't want to be judgy people, but we want to be people who speak the truth. So he says wicked sometimes are going to be praised. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. So what he's saying is, because justice is not really served properly in our world, that's going to encourage people to do more evil. Verse 12, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. So he's saying, I know, though, in the end, it's going to go well for those who fear God. Hang on to that. There's an ultimate judge that's coming. We live in a world where it doesn't look that way. It looks like evil is good and good is bad and things are all flipped around. He's saying, no, hold on. Fear God. It will go well with you. Verse 13, however, it will not go well with the wicked and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow for they are not reverent before God. Now, this is tricky and looks different in every translation, but there's a play on words there. Basically, he's saying it's going to look like the wicked, the evil, those who turn from God, their days are being lengthened. But you know what? In the end, it's not going to go that way. In the end, there's going to be a reversal. So there's kind of a play on words that looks different in every translation on lengthening. It's poetic language. He's saying, in the end, there's a judgment coming. So you're going to walk through life saying, man, their days are lengthened. Wow, it, does, it pays to be wicked. It pays to be evil. They get this great funeral. They live a long life. They have a lot of money. Everything seems to be great for them. And he says, you're not seeing the whole picture. God is the ultimate judge. And awareness of God's judgment helps us to make proper decisions here and now, helps us to have a proper fear of the Lord, right? That's where this whole thing is going in chapter 12 is fear God and keep his commandments. Love God and love people. 
honor God and honor what he says. That, that's where he's taking us at the end of chapter 12, right? Life is going to be confusing. It's like grasping after the wind. You're going to be mixed up. It's, it's looked like good is bad and bad is good, and things are going to be reversed in weird ways. Just hold on. Trust that God is the ultimate judge. We're heading for judgment. And again, that sounds crazy because in our culture, we're taught to hate judgment. In our culture today, judgment is one of the most evil concepts, right? And I, I would say the predominant idea in our culture is we should do away with judgment altogether because it's judgy, right? And, and, and man, I agree with half of that, right? Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. But then there's other places in the Bible that says we should judge. We should judge rightly. We should judge properly. A helpful context for this, I think, where you see both together is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. So if you're a Bible student, go look this up later. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. He's talking about discipline within the church. What he basically says is, if you're a friend of mine in this church and you're not being faithful to your wife, I'm going to go get in your face and yell at you about that because you've said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be faithful. I want to obey his standards. So I'm going to get in your face. I'm going to be judgy with you about that, okay? Because you're a brother in Christ. But he says if the world is walking away from God's standards, that's what the world does. Like, you don't have to be all judgy and in their face about that. Like, don't be so judgy. So there's a balance there where we, judgy is probably the wrong word, but we challenge each other, right? Where we say, hey, man, you, you said you want to follow Christ. Well, then love your wife. Be there for your kids. Be, fit, be a good friend, Right? You need to not cheat at work, right? We need to hold each other to those standards because we love each other, because we truly believe that that's God's good for us. But also we have a freedom to not always be judging the world, to say, if they ask, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, I, don't, I think that relationship's not healthy. Yeah, I don't, I mean, this is what the scriptures say. This is what I've found to be true as I've been walking with Jesus. We, we can give those answers, but we don't need to be throwing them at people all the time. We have a, we have a freedom to wait right? Sometimes you'll have opportunities where people are asking for your opinion. Speak your opinion. It's not like you should be afraid to speak, but we don't need to be broadcasting that in people's face all the time. There's a time to speak, a time to be silent. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom to figure that out, right? Because I think there's, there's two extremes in our world. One extreme is we're afraid to say anything. We never talk. The other extreme is we're always talking and we need to just shut up, right? So there's this, this balance of speaking when it's appropriate with grace. And yeah, I don't, I don't think that's good for you. I care for you. I don't want to see you hurting yourself. And then there's other times to be quiet when people aren't ready to hear it. So there's this picture that God is the ultimate judge, that we think that justice is being blown up in this world, but we have to hold on and trust that God is going to bring ultimate justice and so then that brings us again to the same conclusion that Ecclesiastes keeps bringing us back to again and again. Look at verse 14. There's a futility or a vanity that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I saw this. I say this is futile or vanity again. That's that vapor. It's like grasping after wind. This is frustrating. And look at 15. This is then what we're supposed to do. So what do we do about this? Life is frustrating. It's not fair. He says, verse 15, so I commended enjoyment. So go enjoy life. <laughs> like, what? Really? That's the answer. Here he says, life is unfair. It's not just trust that God is the ultimate just and enjoy your life. It's pretty simple, really. Enjoy your life. 
It's not just enjoy your life. It's not like hedonism, like go have fun like the fool and just party and forget about it. It's saying enjoy your life as a gift given from God. I commended enjoyment because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself. For this will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. He keeps coming back to God gives you these good things, right? A sparrow doesn't fall apart from our Father's will, and God cares for you more than many sparrows, God provides for you. So the application we talked about last week was like, this is why Christians pray at a meal. We give thanks to God and we say, thank you, God, for providing for me. We don't pray to unpoison our food. We pray because we really think God provided for us. And we're just saying, thank you. Thank you, God, for providing. For That's a subversive act, believing that God provides for you and takes care of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he gives good gifts to you? So Solomon here is saying, so enjoy your life and give thanks to God as the one who provides and takes care of you. As we think through this whole concept, these reversals of being haunted by life, God, God can bring life to us through death, right? Through facing funerals, disease, sickness. We can be haunted by life by showing that, you know what? I'm empty, but God gives me grace in Christ and even judgment. There's a judge that's coming, a judgment that's coming that should drive me to entrust myself to Christ instead of trusting in myself. And I want to just read a few words about C.S. Lewis's conversion. He's a famous writer, very active in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, a, a British guy who wrote fiction books, and he also wrote books just in general about the Christian life. And this is his presentation of, I would say, being haunted by the Holy Spirit, being haunted by the Holy Ghost. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in the college, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. What Lewis is saying is that he felt this God chasing him. He felt haunted by the Holy Spirit. And finally he gave in. He said, God, you God. I trust you. I give myself over to you. And what he talks about, too, is how gracious God is that even in our reluctance, even, even in our resistance, God is gracious to pull us in to himself. Again, I know some of you may be in like the hardest place you've been right now, but I want to give you hope that God can actually be drawing you to himself through these experiences. I encourage you to, to call out to him in the midst of it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you that you love us. Thank you, God, that you are the God that you don't call bad things good, but God, you can do good through these bad things that we experience. So we pray that you would grow us through them. You would give us wisdom through them that we wouldn't, we wouldn't ignore and run away from pain and suffering, but we would learn the lessons you have for them so that we can rejoice and have true joy. We can enjoy the life that is truly life, putting our hopes in you and not in this transient earthly life. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.